Wow. <clears throat> Look at you. <clears throat> Time change Sunday. <clears throat> Spring break Sunday. And y'all just came on to church. Just congratulate yourself. Why don't you do that? My goodness. <clears throat> um, at the 830 worship service, um, we gave out a prize to every guest that was here on Time Change Sunday. I gave him a special little celebratory drink of the day, the nectar of the gods, Mountain Dew. Um, anyway, but we're glad you're here on this Time Change Sunday. Do y'all remember some of y'all back in the day when you had to go all through the house and you know what I mean? Get that VCR right and get the one in the kitchen right and the, your clock radio by your bed. Y'all can Google that, a clock radio, okay? See what that used to look like. And uh, did it drive you crazy when they would be one or two minutes off, you know? And uh, anyway, so thank you for this, right? This, uh, I'll be honest with you, all my mama has a, um, or she had a little, um, battery-powered alarm clock. I actually had it this morning as well as a backup, just in case. My rationale was my mama has woke me up for church most of my life, and so I didn't mind having her little alarm clock backing me up. But anyway, I'm glad to be here today. So thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship today. Well, you know, if you've been here at all at First Baptist um, this year, you know our theme for this year is why does it matter and this is a, a year-long journey for us where we are exploring different facets of that question. And it is an attempt to develop, exercise, strengthen our apologetic muscles where we can learn to represent our faith in an articulate way and share it in a way that is compelling, that's appealing to, uh, to others. So evangelism and apologetics together. And so we're exploring different facets of that question. Why does it matter? We started in the winter with why does anything matter? Now, for the Easter season, our theme is your story. Why does it matter? I just want to encourage you that your story matters. I hope you already know that. Your story is your story. And it's important. It matters to God. matters to you. matters to the people in your life. And we would actually like to hear a little bit about your story. And so if you want to share with us how God's at work in your life, maybe during this season in your life, I would encourage you to write us at mystory@fbca.org. We've already started to receive a number of stories, and we're going to share some of those with y'all through various media outlets. And um, it's a time of testimony, not just during this season, but throughout the year. And you know that... We explore all this a little bit more deeply every week in our podcast, Tell Me More. So wherever you happen to get your podcast, you can go to find Tell Me More. And Katie Hodges and Luke Stair and I are in a conversation as we just explore what we talk about on Sunday morning a little more deeply. So with that said, let's look at today's lesson for our Easter journey. I've entitled the message today, Your Past is Past. And I want us to use a passage of Scripture today, John 4. It's a very familiar story. And it will help us frame this conversation today as we want to seek to express our desire to make peace with our past. 
And so I want to encourage you in that journey today. So if you have your copy of the New Testament, if you'd look with me at John's Gospel, we're on the fourth page. We're not going to read the whole uh, chapter, even though that serves as our text. We'll read a good bit of it. <clears throat> so I invite you to do that with me. At our church, it's our custom to stand and honor the Lord Jesus when the Gospel is read. So if you're able to, I invite you to do that. <clears throat> Here's how John tells this story of this very famous encounter. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea, and he went back once more to Galilee. So Judea's in the southern part of Israel, and so now he's going to go to the northern part of Israel from Judea to Galilee. There are a couple of ways to get there. Most Jews would not go through Samaria. Jesus chose to do that, however, so look at verse 4. Now, he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And then John gives you this little comment. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you said, you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. <laughs> Amen. <clears throat> Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, I want to visit with you this morning about making peace with your past. But before I do that, I want to make sure that we grasp the full import of this text. Um, so, because there is so much going on in this text, and I just want to make sure that you see all of that first. So, 
um, this encounter between Jesus and this Samaritan woman is rich with messianic imagery and messianic revelation. And I don't want you to miss it. There's just so much here in this story about Jesus, who Jesus is, how Jesus chose to reveal himself to this woman. So let me just help us through that first, and then we will talk about making peace with our past. But let's let this story first capture our attention. There's a lot going on in this text. For example, there's this whole Samaritan and Jewish tension that's in this text. Samaria was in that geographical region between Judea in the south and Galilee in the north. If you remember, in your Old Testament, when Israel divided into two nations, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom, comprised of these ten tribes, they were conquered by the Assyrians. The Assyrians then intermarried with the Jews. And so the, those ten tribes really were lost, and the purity of Judaism was lost, their ethnicity, and so they became polluted with pagan blood. And eventually that group of folks, their descendants, lived in that region known as Samaria. They had some Jewish blood in them, and yet they were not pure Jews, and so they simply were known as Samaritans. They didn't have to live, there was actually a town named Samaria, but you didn't have to live in Samaria to be a Samaritan. You just lived in that region. Now what was interesting about the Samaritans was they actually believed in the first five books of the Bible. So the Torah, they called it the Samaritan Pentateuch. They believed in the first five books of the Bible. They didn't believe in the prophets. They didn't accept the story of Samuel. They didn't accept the teachings that David was the king of the Jews. So they rejected all of that. But they did embrace the first five books of the Bible. As a matter of fact, they believed that their part of Israel was special and holy. The reason they believed that is because of what they read in the Pentateuch. So for example, if you remember when Abraham made his way into Canaan, the very first time, Abraham built his first altar at a place called Shechem. Shechem is actually in Samaria, not too far from where this woman lives. So in her mind, Father Abraham came to this land, built his very first altar right here where we live. Not only that, if you read the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy prophesies this, that the people will go into the promised land, and God said you'll proclaim victory at Mount Gerizim, which is a mountain there in Samaria where this woman lives, and also you will pronounce the curses on Mount Ebal. Those are the twin peaks in Samaria, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Well, guess what happens? Joshua leads the children of Israel in the promised land, and you come to Joshua 8, verse 33, and that's what happens. They pronounce the blessings and the curses, and Mount Gerizim becomes a holy mountain to these people. Fast forward years later, when the Samaritans now have lost their purity in terms of their Jewish ethnicity, the Jews in Judea built a temple in Jerusalem. The Samaritans built a rival temple on Mount Gerizim, and that's where they worshiped God. And their justification was, this is where Father Abraham came. This is where our people announced their blessings. And so it was a special holy place to them. 128 BC, the Jewish leaders invaded Samaria, destroyed their army, 
and went to Mount Gerizim and burned that temple to the ground. So by the time Jesus was alive, there was no longer a temple on Mount Gerizim, but that's still where the Samaritans worshiped. Are y'all still with me? Now the Jews looked at the Samaritans and said, these are unclean people. They're not purebred Jews. They've actually built their own temple. And so just to travel through Samaria potentially could leave you unclean and polluted. Notwithstanding, the last thing that most Jews would do would be to stay anywhere in Samaria or engage Samaritans in any kind of theological conversation. So they basically avoided this place geographically and they avoided it theologically, okay? So notice where we have Jesus. He leaves Judea and he goes right through Samaria. Now John is painting a portrait for us that I don't want you to miss. John is letting us know who Jesus is. He's already mentioned the law, the temple, and all these great heroes. So let me just catch you up to date by the time you get to John 4. If you go back to John 1, verse 17, here's what John says. He says, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth have been given through Jesus. So right off the bat, page 1, John compares Moses and Jesus. Then you come to John 2, Jesus um, provides the miracle of turning the water into wine. He uses the purification pots. Remember this story? We talked about it. And allows the people to actually drink wine from those purification pots. Jesus saying that he is now fulfilling all these ritual practices in Israel's life. Then later in John 2, Jesus goes to the temple in Jerusalem and cleanses it and claims that a new day is now here. He now is the embodiment of the temple. He says, you'll destroy this temple. I will rebuild it in three days. Then in John 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he tells Nicodemus in verse 14, just like Moses lifted up the snake and the serpent so people could be healed, the son of man's going to be lifted up and you won't just be healed, you'll have eternal life. Then you come to this story, and we have another hero in the story where this woman says, do you not know this is Jacob's well? You don't know the story of our geography. Don't you know that Jacob gave this land to his son Joseph, and this well belongs to one of our heroes? Are you greater than Jacob? That's what she asked Jesus. Yes. He is. <laughs> she doesn't know that yet. Then you get to John 8, and there's this whole conversation about Abraham. And Jesus says, before Abraham, I am. So think about it. John is painting this picture for us. Jesus fulfills the law. He replaces the temple. He is greater than all of these heroes. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the rituals. He's going to fulfill the law. He's greater than Jacob. He's even greater than Abraham. So Moses, I mean, uh, John is painting a picture of who Jesus is in this story. I don't want you to miss it. And then notice what else Jesus does. Jesus is at a well, and he offers this woman living water. Now, Jesus is, is calling attention to the Old Testament understanding of what God did for his people. So let me remind you back in Jeremiah 2, verse 13. God says this, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, 
the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So God says, Israel is looking for fulfillment somewhere else, and I'm the source of all living water. You have to come to me to receive it. Now Jesus is at this well in Samaria, and he says to this woman, I can provide you with something. He's speaking about his divinity here. I can offer you something that you will find nowhere else. In fact, I will give you water. I'm going to give you living water. And this spring actually will be inside of you and it will well up inside of you and it will overflow in your life and it will result in your eternal life. And you will never be thirsty again. So Jesus is making a bold claim to divinity he is the Messiah. He's going to fulfill the law. He's going to replace the temple. He is going to institute a brand new era of worship. He tells her, the hour has come. You now must worship God, not on Gerizim, not even in Jerusalem. But if you want to worship this God who is spirit, you will worship him in spirit and truth. She finally says, well, I'm going to tell you what the Messiah is supposed to tell us all that. And Jesus says, that's who I am. So don't miss out, y'all. What's going on here is John is, is adding to his portrait of who Jesus is. And so on top of that, y'all, think about to whom Jesus is speaking when he reveals all of this. Think about what's going on here. He is talking to a woman. Now, ladies, no disrespect. But in the first century, a single unmarried Jewish rabbi would never have a public theological conversation with a woman. But Jesus did. And if you were going to have it with a woman, you certainly wouldn't have it with a Samaritan woman. But Jesus did. And if you were going to have it with a woman who was a Samaritan, you certainly wouldn't have it with a woman who was a Samaritan with a checkered past. But Jesus did. How many boundaries does Jesus cross in this one conversation? Think about it. You go from Jesus talking to Nicodemus. Can you get any further from Nicodemus than a Samaritan woman with a checkered past in the first century? Jesus is, is showing us everybody needs Jesus. That, that's the portrait John is painting. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter how worse off you are. From A to Z, everybody needs Jesus. And guess what? He's available to everybody. So Jesus... It's here with this woman, the Samaritan, questionable character. And y'all, pay attention. Notice where the conversation happens. At a well. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you, you, you start to thinking about this. You can't help yourself because things happen at wells. Especially with regard to marriage. Go back to Genesis 24. Abraham sent his servant to go find Isaac, a wife. So his servant goes... And guess what? He meets Rebekah at a well and finds a wife for Isaac, the son of promise. Exodus chapter 2, Moses is banned from Egypt. He goes to Midian and he goes to a well. And he's at that well that he meets Jethro's daughters. And he finds a wife for himself among Jethro's family. And now we have Jesus at Jacob's well all this imagery is in the background. All this betrothal imagery. And Jesus meets a woman without proper betrothal heritage and pedigree and offers her a brand new life. What a, 
what a beautiful painting from John. John is a theological artist. So we have to pay attention when we're reading John to catch all these threads that he's weaving into this incredible story. So don't miss this, y'all. This is the Messiah, and John is helping you to understand. He basically is fulfilling everything the Jews had hoped for, and he's doing it in a way that no one would have ever expected. It's a powerful, poignant, gripping story. Now, with all that said, what else can we learn from this text? If I can, I'd like to just take us for a few minutes and drill down a little more deeply on this relationship between Jesus and this woman and what he reveals to her and how it might apply to your life today. Can we do that? So here's what I want us to do. I want us to think about our past. Okay? So here's where I want us to begin. For some of us this morning, here's what we need to say to our past. Good riddance. Some of us need that message. Don't spend your life imprisoned by your past. You don't want to live your whole life looking in the rearview mirror. Have you ever noticed how small your rearview mirror is compared to your windshield? Your rearview mirror is there for a reason. It gets a glance. But the windshield gets your focus. I guess you could drive your car looking in the rearview mirror, I guess. I wouldn't recommend it. Some of y'all remember my mom and dad, my dad, when they were living with us, right before we took daddy's keys away from him. One day he asked me to back his car out of our driveway. Some of y'all remember the house we lived in Interlock, and backing out of that driveway was a little dicey anyway. So I ran downstairs. I said, okay, Dad, let me back it out for you. So I go to back it out where the rear view mirror was facing this way. The passenger mirror was facing an odd angle. The driver's side mirror as well. Well, I backed his car out and Mother and Daddy came down the steps and to get in the car. I said, Daddy, your mirrors are messed up. Don't touch my mirrors. Okay, he said, you know I can't see. I've got them just so your mom can see where we're going while I'm driving. <laughs> and that was it. Um, well, God knows we all have a past, but to be imprisoned by your past, that's no healthy way to live. Sometimes we need good riddance. So let me talk about that for a minute. How do you make peace with your past? Well, I can't explore it all fully this morning. I don't have time to do that. I'm just going to offer you some ideas about how to make peace with your past and offer you some suggestions. You know, first of all, some people just need to be forgiven of their own sin. Some people are burdened with their past because they just have unforgiven sin. They've just never come clean with God. And you need to be cleansed. You know, it's interesting, in New York City right now, I don't know if y'all know this or not, but every year on December 28th, do you know they celebrate at Times Square what they call Good Riddance Day? Y'all seen that? I got a photo of this year's celebration. Here's what you do. You go to Times Square and they have these massive shredders and they give you these documents and you just write your mistakes and the things you just want to get rid of from this past year. You write them all down and you just throw them in a shredder. Shredder, I mean. Or some of them, they actually have sledgehammers. You may bring something with you that's just haunted you and you can just smush it on that day. So all day, 
Times Square, December 28th. Mark your calendar if you need it. You can just go shred everything. But you know what, y'all? As good as that might be, you really need more than that. Because what some of us need is to just be forgiven. We need to be honest with God. Um, David Brooks, he's a columnist for the New York Times. He's a newer Christian. David Brooks has written an article about the persistence of guilt. He says, my country, my society has gotten rid of God. He said, well, we can't get rid of our guilt. And we just feel guilty. He says, you'll, be, you'll see something and you'll see some child who lives in an impoverished place in the world and you'll feel guilty. You can't help yourself. He said, there's so many things that we just cause us to feel guilty. And he said, and now you take God away from us. We have nowhere to go with our guilt. There's nobody there to forgive our sin. Well, let me tell you right now. We haven't gotten rid of God. <laughs> and you can still go to him. And right now, if your past is troubled and you're burdened by it because of unconfessed, unforgiven sin, then let me give you some encouragement. I got some really good news. We have a God in heaven who's an expert at forgiving sin. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, repent then. And turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and the times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And any of you who have ever repented and confessed your sin, you know about those times of refreshing. Where God can just bring the sense of his presence in your life. 1 John 1 verse 9. John, the man who wrote this gospel, wrote this. If we'll confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I love that text. He'll forgive you and he'll cleanse you. Those are two different things. Forgiveness is instant. Cleansing takes a little while. God will forgive you. It may take a little while to clean you up. He's really good at it. One time when I was a little boy, my mama told us we weren't supposed to go out to play. She was going to the grocery store and it's really muddy outside. She said, I know how you boys are. Well, as soon as she left, we did what boys do. We went outside. And uh, I'll never forget, I was out there by myself playing in the mud and I remember that car coming down the driveway and I thought, oh man, I thought I'd beat her. And so I took off trying to get around that corner and get up those steps and my mom just stopped right there and saw me. And there I was. But I was so cute, y'all. <clears throat> and I looked at her and I said, mama, I'm sorry. And she just started laughing. She forgave me right then. Took her about 30 minutes to clean me up though. <clears throat> you see, that's how it works. You carry this unconfessed sin. You carry this burden. Confess it to the Lord. Give him a chance to forgive you. And here's what I'll tell you. He'll forgive you. You repent. He forgives. That's what he does. And then he will cleanse you and grace you. He's so good at it, y'all. But you know, for some people, it's not just that they need their sins forgiven. There's some of you right now within the sound of my voice that just can't forgive yourself. I just want to encourage you. When the Lord forgives you, then you can forgive yourself. Now, if you're having a hard time doing that, then I would encourage you to get some help. Some godly, godly Christian counselors, spiritual leaders, even in our church, who would walk down that path with you to help you. Forgive yourself. Let yourself up off the mat. Let yourself off the hook. Some of you, your past is a burden to you because you've been victimized. And that's particularly painful. 
And so there's the need for you to forgive others. I would contend sometimes that's a really hard thing to do. Forgive others. And I know it can be really challenging. You know, this story about this woman, we don't really know what happened to her. We don't. Um, says she'd been married five times. You can look at that one of two ways in the first century. You can look at her and make a judgment about her. Or you could look at her husbands and make a judgment about them. Because in her day, it had been very easy to be victimized by men. That could very well be what's happened. We don't really know. But the point is, if you've been victimized, forgiving others is a hard thing to do. But with God's grace, with some godly counsel, finding the right people who are competent, who can help you walk down that path, you can do it. Here's what I've learned. Not everybody in my past is worthy to be forgiven. So it's not always about the worth of the person who's victimized you. It's not, it's not always what it's about. Sometimes it's about being set free so that you can live fully into your present and your future. As hard as that process can be, I would encourage you. Find the people who can help you and allow God's grace to guide you. Some people need to make amends. You know, sometimes you need some concrete action. It was Zacchaeus. Remember what he did? He just went and paid everybody back. <laughs> I mean, sometimes you got to make amends. Here's what I'd say about that. Seek godly counsel before you do it. Seek God's direction to help guide you. Here's the point, y'all. I can't cover all of it today in just one sermon, but let me just offer you this word of encouragement. Make peace with your past. Find God's healing for your past because your past is past. Now, I want you to notice what Jesus does. Jesus wants to redeem you and transform your present reality. That's what he does, what he did in this story. How do I know that? Well, look what happens to this woman. We talked about her last week. This woman wouldn't even go to the well with all the other women. She went in the middle of the day when nobody went to the well in the middle of the day. It was too hot. But that's what she did because she was tired of being with the other women. Guess what she does? She goes to the well in secret. And then she meets Jesus and she's there to get water. And she leaves the water pot and she runs back to the village. And she leaves the secrecy of her water journey and she returns to the village as an evangelist. And she tells everybody, y'all are not going to believe this, but the guy out there at the well told me everything about my life. Y'all need to come meet him. He's the Messiah. You know what the Bible says happened? The whole village went out to see Jesus. You know how this chapter ends? These Samaritans say to Jesus, you're the savior of the whole world. <laughs> how about that? You see, Jesus... What he will do is, if you will let him, if you'll give yourself to him, he will offer you his presence, his power, his life, his purpose. And he will transform your presence, your present reality, just by the dynamic of his presence. As a matter of fact, when he's present in your life, it's like living water springing up inside of you. A well that you can't even understand that will overcome your hurt 
and your brokenness and your pain and you can be transformed in the present in spirit and in truth. You don't have to lie about it. You don't have to fake it. It's real. It's deep. It's meaningful. And he will deliver you from your pain. He will rescue you from your emptiness. He will lead you beyond your insignificance. And what he will do is if you'll let him, he'll redeem you. He will rescue you. He will redefine you. He will reframe your life. And he'll restore you into a purposeful existence. You see, Jesus has a way of transforming your present reality if you let him. I would encourage you today, make peace with your past and find the Lord Jesus today in your present life. And you know what else he does for you? He offers you hope for a future that only he can offer. He's the only one that can do this right here. He's the only one that can say, I want to give you something that'll last you for eternity. He's the only one that can make that promise. No other prophet can make that promise. No other teacher can make that promise. But the Messiah can. He tells this woman, he says, I'm going to give you something if you'll take it. I'm going to give you living water. And guess what it'll lead to? Eternal life, hope, a future. Instead of a, 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 a life that is doomed for being separated from God, here's what Jesus gives you, hope. He offers you a life that's abundant and rich and deep and meaningful on this earth, and it will last forever. It's a life that's eternal. It's a gift he delivers you from being eternally separated from God, eternally separated from God's presence, eternally separated from God's purpose for your life if you'll let him have your life, all of it, and just give him the opportunity to rescue you, redeem you, restore you, and reframe your whole life. You know, my parents were heavily influenced by what happened in 1929. My mom and dad were Depression-era people. It, it was in their DNA. Many of you in this room don't remember that. But some of you do remember what happened in 2008 when our economy collapsed. You know, economists in both of those major collapses, experts, made all kinds of predictions. And they made a lot of mistakes. Do you know that today there's a library in Edinburgh, Scotland, that has collected over 2,000 volumes of sensible economic literature, and they've gathered it in an, an area in the library, and you know what they call it? The Library of Mistakes. And they've compiled all this material to help economists learn from past mistakes and not make the same ones again. They are to inform this next generation of economists. Here's what I'd say. I'm okay with that. But if you're carrying around a library of mistakes that's burdening you, that's just reminding you of your past failures, I don't recommend that. However, if you have a reference library that you just consult on occasion so that you can learn from your mistakes and be informed by then, I, I would recommend that. But not to let them hound you. You know, Pat Conroy, he wrote that book, um, on my losing season. And he said, in his own life, his failures. He said, my failures were in my ear all the time. He said, they were kind of like a dog outside my window barking at the moon, just reminding me of what I'd done wrong. Well, that's not a healthy way to live. I'm okay with having a library of mistakes as long as it's only there for reference. Willie Carson, he's a British jockey, won over 3,800 3, races 
Five times he was the British national jockey champion. He said one time he was in a race in Scotland and pushing his horse pretty hard. He was winning and he knew it, but he said he just sensed that there was another horse behind him. He looked over his shoulder and he saw it and he just pressed his horse onto the finish line, pushed it really hard. He said, I got to the finish line, looked over my shoulder and there wasn't a horse anywhere in sight. 16 lengths he had won. What he had seen was his own shadow. And he said, the last half of the race, I ran from my own shadow. There's a whole lot of people right now running from their own shadow. I want to encourage you. I don't care who you are. Nicodemus or an unnamed woman at the well. Doesn't matter. Here's what I know about Jesus. He's always more interested in where you are right now and who you can become than where you've ever been or who you've ever been. That's the Jesus I know. Let him meet you right now. Let him transform your future. Give him a chance. He's really, really good at it. I want to encourage you this morning. Your past is just that. It's past. May you find meaning in your present and hope for your future. May it be so. Let me pray for us. Father, today we... Just bow before you, thanking you, first of all, Lord, that you're at work in our lives and that you're a God who sees, redeems, heals, forgives, graces, loves, restores, rescues. Thank you. And so right now, Lord, there may be people within the sound of my voice that need all of that. And I just ask you to provide it for them, Lord. Lord, if there are those who... um, Maybe it's just time for them to take a step. Maybe it's to find godly counsel, to come to grips with someone who can really help them or give them the courage and guide them in that journey. May we be a part of that if need be. If there are those who just need forgiveness, may they just come to you right now like a prodigal son just running home. And Lord, we know they'll be met with open arms And may you receive them into your heart and grace them and cleanse them and refresh their spirits. Whatever the needs are, Lord, I ask God that you would give us all wisdom, healing power to make peace with our past. And we want to thank you that you've made it available through your son. And we pray in his name. Amen.